0: If we were to say that God has a claim on us, that would sound like a silly understatement, wouldn't it? Of course he does. He's creator, sustainer, but more importantly, he is father. And even though the entire idea is a a given, why is it that so often, at least among some Christians, the idea gets communicated that God may not be all that interested in you or in your well-being. No one, except a few religious crackpots maybe, actually preaches such a thing, but somehow the idea is far more common than we might think, that God is hard to engage, difficult to please, and dangerous to encounter. It has been rightly said that God is not difficult to please, but he is hard to satisfy. He's pleased with our honest cry to him, But he's not satisfied until that cry leads to total surrender and complete union. Not some mere theological positional idea of positional union, but for real. So with that promise in place and that premise in place, I want to stir up a question that I hope will stir up a struggle in all of us. I want to... uh, examine the fact that we can accept the fact that God, being God, has full rights to us, but how about if we turn that around? Could you say with equal conviction that you have claims on God? You have rightful claims on God. I'm not sure why obvious truths like that escape people, but somehow, I suppose, due to a lot of bad preaching maybe, People don't know that God has given us a right to him. John chapter 1 verse 12 among many other verses. It's obvious in scripture but also it's proven in our human nature. By the way, his demand for rightness shows up in our own human demand for rightness. For instance, when a man fathers a child and then doesn't take responsibility for that child we rightfully look down on such a man to the point of rejecting his manhood. Is it not right then to consider that God makes himself even more responsible than a human father to provide for the needs of a human soul since he not only fathered it into existence and sustains its every breath, but also he created the needs in that child, Now get it clearly in our thinking. We exist by His will and more than that, our inner needs and deepest longings are all the direct results of God's formation of us. Psalm 139 comes to mind among many other verses. And God is responsible for His own creation. This principle is easy to see and hard to miss, but religion is a weird thing and it has an ability to hide the obvious and make simple facts confusing. To hear many tell it, God is distant from his creation, almost like the Hindu Brahman. Or worse, because unlike Brahman, God is supposedly angrily resistant to mankind, even though he created us and gave us the sort of inner life we have. This terrible misinterpretation of scripture is the reason behind much confusion and suffering among believers and much rebellion and unbelief among those who reject such a confusing so-called faith. He has made us in his own image and likeness. This refers, among other things, to our ability to know and relate to him. He, He cannot be indifferent or angry when he is the one who formed us. No, what he's rightly angry at is our using our God-given power in ways that are in opposition to his character and his purpose. The word for that is sin. But like so many other words over the years, this word has lost its original force of understanding and has been dwindled down to a word that now has little force in our ears. If we're not believers, it's just a quaint, silly word used by goody-two-shoes church people. If we are church people, hopefully not the goody-two-shoes kind, it's a word that brings up all sorts of ideas, often ideas that are inaccurate and incomplete. Sin, for many, really just means breaking the rules. Well, yes, sin is, I guess, breaking the rules if you want to use a very elementary school definition. But is that all it is? And is that what the scripture meant to awaken in us when it describes sin and sin's terrible consequence, which is death? No, not at all. And we must regain a true understanding of the meaning of sin so that when we read in scripture the terrible consequences of sin, which is death, we understand the logic of that statement and we then say yes, the wages of sin is death. Death in all of its manifestations. That makes perfect sense, we should say. As it stands now, many people, I do not say all, but too many, outwardly agree with the scriptures, but inwardly do not For If they were honest, they would really say what they really think is well, I truly don't see how breaking a rule should bring such terrible results. The punishment should fit the crime after all. So I did a few wrong things. Let me pay my fine and let me go. Or worse than that some think, well Jesus did pay my fine and I have been let go. Yes, I have sinned and will send some more, almost as if they planned to. And praise God, Jesus paid my fine, and I'm covered all the way around. He knows my heart, he forgives me, and he covers me, they say. Now, of course he knows our heart, and of course he forgives us. But the result of this kind of misunderstanding of salvation is a weak Christian life, which corporately produces a weak Christian church, which results in a weak Christian influence and an eventual disintegration of real Christianity as it becomes worldlier and the world becomes churchier. We end up with this terrible mess that we now have. True disciples of Jesus can't help but mourn as the holiness of God is openly mocked by the world, and they learn that mockery by observing a weak, immoral, confused, and powerless church system. Sin is not a mere breaking of rules. It is a form, or I should say the form, of utter insanity. Insanity is the only word for it, for sin demands of God that he remove out of our way so that we can restructure reality according to our demands, our lusts, our desire for revenge or bitterness or destructive self-pleasure, with no regard for the ongoing ramifications of what we are miscreating. For no sin ever exists alone. All sinful action sets in motion an ongoing power of destruction that would eventually destroy all creation if it was allowed to continue in its domino effect. Of course since we're not gods we still have to depend on the real God to supply us our being and to sustain our existence so the insanity goes even further in that we not only reject God as God but demand that he go on supporting our rebellion by supplying us life, liberty, and the pursuit of sin, as we reject him and seek to create a planet on our own terms. This insanity causes us to come up with theologies that deny his focused attention for our good and our silly idea that he is distant. See, we want him to be distant, uncaring, and angry. He's easier to ignore. What if he really does love us, though? What then? No, it's not him that's distant, it's we who are distant to him and only want him really when we are in some trouble and need a superman to swoop down and rescue us. Then we hope he will swoop up again as fast as he swooped down and go away and leave us to be our own God. He's near to every human being and is reaching towards us. In him we actually live and move and have our being. And he has created the system of this world in such a way so as to help us reach back toward him. You read in Acts chapter 17 where Paul describes that God created the boundaries of time, space, relationships, nature, loving interdependence among human beings, human emotions, all that works toward this hopeful end. But left in our hands, turned away from God, all these same interrelationship systems that were meant to guide us to him work the opposite. And he will not impose himself upon us to such a degree that it would overpower or over, over, uh, overcome our ability to choose. As C.S. Lewis said, he cannot rape He can only woo. It is therefore evidently a ploy of the deceiver that weaves a web of lies that claims God cannot be approached without certain rituals and that he takes absolutely no responsibility for the welfare of human beings. I don't mean at all to imply that God is to blame for anything. Being responsible for our creation and being to blame for our mess is not the same thing. God not only takes responsibility for us, but he gives us freedom to go our own way. We are to blame for our wrong choices, not God. But he's not unrighteous in uh, ignoring the issues of our lives that we were not to blame for. He works around our freedom to draw us to himself And in his loving and righteous care for us, he waits for us to come to the place of yielding to him so that he can then give us even more of himself than he's able to do in just the matters of supplying basic life needs. All the scriptures that rightly refer to us as sheep who have gone astray from the womb and who are born in iniquity are all true, but none of those verses even implies that God is therefore distant from us. On the very contrary, He is describing our sinful rebelliousness because He is not distant. He is present to us from the very beginning of our lives and is so interested in the outcome that He seems to be focused on little else. How we could come up with the image of a distant, unapproachable, angry God whose only emotion toward man is rage, must be the product of satanic PR. These lies easily find cooperation from us due to our rebellious attitude and human confusion. The end result is a satanic human partnership that accuses and maligns God, who is the giver of all good things and of life itself, while we continue to mar and twist and, and pervert all those good gifts, and manifest death. But then we also shroud all this in theology, or what I might call church talk. Now, obviously, not all church talk is wrong, but there's a whole lot of church talk that is deadly wrong. Have you ever heard anything quite like this? Maybe not these words, but this attitude? We must not seek to make God in a mere human being image with human emotions. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than ours. Yeah, that's true. His ways are higher than ours, not lower than ours. If we have a sense of justice and right in us, it's only a mere shadow of God's full light on justice and right. His ways are higher. And they're not totally foreign or being made in his image and likeness would be a meaningless phrase. Uh, Anglican priest in Great Britain, Mr. W. H. Vanstone, said in one of his writings, quote, most preachers would say that the love of God surpasses or transcends human love. Some have said it, quote, is altogether different from human love. Now, this statement cannot be taken seriously, If the love of God is altogether different from human love, then it would be better to use for it the name of something from which it is not altogether different. The name of something within our experience to which it bears some likeness. And if there is nothing within our experience to which it bears some likeness, then we are speaking of a wholly unknown something of which it is unprofitable to speak. Amen. Of course, what some preachers mean by statements like the ones just cited is that human love is so broken and the word love so misused that surely God's love is far, far above that. And that is certainly true. But then the human imagination takes over and comes up with all kinds of false and even silly statements that soon get ensconced into religious rhetoric as if it came from Scripture. A lot of human imagination has gone into interpreting our systematic theologies, and we have elevated much of our imagined ideas about God as if they were on the same level as Holy Scripture. A sure test of truth is this. If it does not produce life and goodness, it's probably not the right interpretation. Israel's history is full of this very struggle They they had a hard time getting that right and not going off into the ditch of religious bondage. But they often failed in their struggle just like we have often failed. God had to come in person as the living Torah and demonstrate what the law meant. Many got it, many didn't get it, and some did get it and hated Jesus for not being what their imagination decided he should be. He would not kill the woman taken in adultery, so they wanted to kill him for not killing her. See, you get the picture. The letter kills. It's the spirit that gives life. Religion apart from the Holy Spirit's revelation and guidance produces bondage unto death instead of freedom unto life. We have the pharisaical version of it, then we have the medieval version of it, then the old Protestant version, the new Protestant version, then the Pentecostal holiness version, and now all versions fighting each other. God hates evil and sin because it is anti-life and God loves life and therefore loves you. He loves you. He loved you when he formed you. And he has always loved you. He's angry at sin every day. He's not angry at you every day. In fact, it's the simple truth that the reason he is angry at sin every day is because of what sin does to hurt you whom he loves every day. This is not mysterious, for heaven's sakes. His goodness is over all he has made, Scripture says. That may not fit some systematic theologies, but it fits his testimony of himself in Scripture, it fits the revelation of himself in Jesus, it fits the need and cry of our human hearts. We eventually will begin to cry out for that regardless of our theological training. We evidently were created to need God to love us. Well, we need water and there is water. We need food and there is food. We need human affection and there is such a thing. We need God And to hear any preaching that implies that God is indifferent to that need and indifferent to our cry for him or even angry at us for being needy, that's religiously cuckoo. He's responsible for this need in us. He created it. Therefore, he is responsible for the fulfillment of that need. And he's taken full responsibility for us all the way to the cross and the empty tomb. Is it blasphemous to consider that the creator would be responsible for what he created? Well, obviously not. It's blasphemous not to see it. Fear of blasphemy in this context comes from the very blasphemous system that doesn't want you to think and learn. The religious spirit, a demonic force of bondage, talks like this. This is what you will hear from the religious spirit. Quote, this is the way it is. If you think it makes no sense, then it proves you are not one of the chosen. So be damned. Otherwise, ask no questions and do as you're told. Its system goes like this. You had no say in your existence. You had no control over your genetics or your early life experience or your parental treatment or your circumstances of life. God did. But you are to blame for every aspect of your mess and God will judge you for it. And if you dare to question the justice of that fact, your damnation will be all the more terrible for asking questions. Yes to some, even asking questions in order to examine what might be true or not true is considered blasphemy. Of course, this is how Islam works. Uh, this is how all enslavements by dictators works. But we have our Christian versions of it too. We have uh, Baptist prisons and Catholic prisons and Pentecostal prisons and Reform prisons. Isn't it interesting that they all have this one thing in common? You dare not ask questions or break the prison rules. Because all such systems are from the same source. The enemy of God and man who hates God and wants man to hate him too. Religion is often very hateful. Now I'm not implying of course that all Pentecostals are all Baptists or all Reform or all whatever you might name are in this category? Certainly not, but the system obviously is. Growing up believing this kind of confusing, daunting stuff to the point that you dare not even examine its validity or question it, is a perfect laboratory for producing either mind-numbed religious robots, or on the other hand, religious-hating atheists, the way out of either of these terrible fates is to choose to believe what God says about himself. What does he say about himself? Hebrews 11.6, whoever comes to him must first believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See? He knows that the first thing you have to have in order to make any progress relating to him is obviously, number one, believe that he is there, but more to the point, believe that he wants good for you. He is a rewarder, the rewarder. Once you grasp that, even on a little level, he can then begin taking you into the relationship with him that he always intended. But you and I have spent a lot of time and energy weaving a life for ourselves that did not include him at all. Even parts of our so-called faith life it's like a cancerous tumor of self-centeredness that cannot give us life, will give us death and cannot coexist with Him. If we're going to live with God and know His life this old system of false life has got to die. We cannot survive its death at first because we are so tied up with it that we think it is us and we are terrified to let it go. But as his life enters us more and more, we begin to understand what Jesus meant when he told us to come and die so that we can live. Once we get an understanding of God's character, his goodness, his love, that he is love we are then in a position to follow Jesus all the way to the cross, our cross. That's not some weird religious term. Our call to death, our dying to our old self, is a reasonable fact when all facts are understood correctly. In order for us to come to life, we must pass through death. Death to this old false self. This old self is how we have coped with life without God. It's made up of all sorts of lies and lusts and layers of fake behavior, secretly nursed bitternesses and fantasies, all evil. But we actually feel that these things are good or we would not have wallowed in them for all these years. But since we thought it was good, then dying to it is going to feel bad at first. Faith comes in where we choose to trust what feels bad and reject what feels good. When we do, we are believing God that he is and that he is the rewarder of us and wants to give us the true good. Eventually, that true good we long for can drive out the true bad that we've been wrongly trusting in. Our feelings will eventually align with the true and the good. We will hate what we once wrongly loved and we will come to love what we only religiously claimed we loved but really didn't. A.W. Tozer rightly warned us years ago that talking about positional dying as a matter of theology only was the greatest hindrance to the actual work of death to self that would hinder any production of real change in us. Paul said that he was crucified with Christ. Well, he was. But that doesn't mean that I can grab that verse and take it up as a legality and claim that I too am crucified with Christ unless I really am. Now, positionally, yes, we are crucified with Christ. But do you really think God's only interested in positional relationship uh, no more than your wife or husband would be interested in a legality of a, a marriage contract with no, no relationship behind it. We cannot embrace the cross without a revelation of the goodness of God. But Once we get a revelation of that goodness, then we can trust him to take us through the process necessary to put our old life to death. Otherwise we could not endure the dying work of the cross without first having a living vision of the love that is calling us to die. We couldn't do it. If all we have is an angry, distant God who calls us to die, that won't help us move forward very much in our progress with God, will it? Chesterton said that man cannot live without delight. So if we cannot find delight in God, he, man, will then have to look to lower things, to delight in. We cannot delight in God until we truly see him as he really is. False concepts of God will drive us away from him and towards lesser things, which we then make our God. We delight in them instead of God, who is our only true and ultimate source of delight. God is not the author of confusion. He's not the author of death either. He's the author of life. He is love. But Jesus made it clear that in order to come to life, we must die to our old selves. If we understand three basic things about this fact, it'll all begin to make sense. Point number one, our definition of life and love is messed up. I think think we can all say that without fear of contradiction. Point number two God's definition of life and love is the only definition that counts. And that brings us to point number three. God does not change to accommodate our mess. Point number one, our definition of life and love is messed up. Point number two, God's definition of life and love is the only one that counts. Point number three, God does not change to accommodate our mess. When we understand these truths, then it makes sense that Jesus, who loves us totally and perfectly, calls us to come and die. He does not call us to die first, but to come to him first. We cannot try to die apart from him. That would kill us. No, we come to him first and take his yoke upon us, which ties us to him then he begins teaching us how to live with him and to come into full and complete relationship with him. And in order for that relationship to become what it was meant to be, things in us have to change. We do not have to change for him to love us, not at all. The nature of love is itself found in the fact that it has the ability to embrace us just as we are. That's true. But that same nature of love that embraces us just as we are will just as surely begin the process of burning away all in us that love cannot embrace. Do do you get this? Say for instance a drug addict's son comes home. I fully embrace him mess and all. But that same love that welcomes and embraces also begins to go after everything in my son that is in opposition to love. Now, that analogy is not perfect in that I do not have the omniscience or power or perfect love in order to burn away the drugs in my son or his desire for them. But in my human struggle to love the sinner and hate the sin, I may make some really bad mistakes and we all know that story. But the analogy still surely makes sense, that for love to be love, it must only love what is lovable and hate what is not lovable. And our God is a consuming fire. This is the real gospel. Jesus came to save us from sin, not for sin. He loves us unconditionally, and he also hates sin unconditionally, too. It's totally impossible for God to love us and tolerate what is destroying us. He unconditionally hates sin in every form because he loves us unconditionally. Uh, This term unconditional love gets misused and overused as does the word love in general. Unconditional love is not a bad term if we understand it correctly. Otherwise it is a problem unconditional love does not mean that god says i will love you in your unlovable and even your evil self unconditional love means i will love you without limits this is what it really means i'll love you without limits including doing whatever it takes to burn out of you all that love cannot love so that in the end love can love you completely because you will become totally lovable Now the whining mindset of this culture, even Christian culture, will cry out, that's not unconditional love. That's not love at all. You're telling me I have to change before you will love me. No. He is telling us that because he loves you, he will do whatever it takes to make you worthy of that love, even if it kills you, then he'll raise you in your true self from the dead. I often think, now more than ever, that the term inner healing needs to be altered to maybe inner killing. Healing brings an end to disease, but so does death. Some things in us may need healing, but I think a lot of what we seek healing for actually is, uh, is not, it's not good tissue that needs restoration, it's bad tissue that needs amputation. Now, obviously, we are not referring to actually killing somebody. But there is still a very real kind of death and a very tangible dying process that we all must pass through. It is a process. For some, it is an almost instant one in some aspects of their lives. But for most of us, though, it's a longer ordeal. And depending on our stubbornness or our self-deception or our level of addiction to our own way of life, or our lack of understanding of the cross, it may take a lifetime and beyond. In any case, that process may be as quick or as long and drawn out and painful as it has to be in order to reach its goal. And the goal is freeing us from what is killing us so we can live fully. Jesus said in Matthew 16.25 in the Amplified, Whoever tries to preserve his low life will lose his higher life. A clear teaching of what the cross means for the believer cannot be fully given to a young convert but still it must be communicated even at conversion that what is being called for by the Lord is the life of that convert. Instead of just, this, just say a prayer and it's all done. Now Don't misunderstand me. Anyone can be born into the kingdom in a millisecond and with a very little understanding. That does not mean, however, that there's no need to teach that newborn soul about what is happening from that point forward. I and many others might have been saved a lot of confusion and failure and unnecessary suffering had the call of the cross been more clearly taught to me in my early days of faith." As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Vladimir Lenin said a similar thing to the first graduating class of the Communist Party when he said, you are all dead men. Now go and live like it. Both true Christianity as well as atheistic communism calls for a life commitment, while Western Christians are mostly told to Pray a simple prayer, sign a card, and get involved in a church. Now, I'm not making light of those simple instructions. They're a real beginning for many, but only a beginning. There's more to the call to follow Jesus than the initial encounter. Yet, Western Christianity has dumbed down the gospel to only that and nothing more. As a result, we are bankrupt morally, relationally, sexually. We're sadly ineffective in being salt and light in the earth. And God is not unfaithful. He's amazingly patient and humble. And I mean that uh, by referring to the fact that he's willing to help us come fully to him and that he's able to take even inept beginnings and still use them to lead us further up and further in. He's certainly merciful and he certainly did that with me and with many others. But I did suffer a lot of what I believe now was unnecessary time of sheer agony from lack of understanding. Paul speaks in Colossians chapter 2 about the full comfort that comes from the full assurance that comes from understanding. He's not just referring to basic conversion, salvation, information. He's talking about the ways of God in our lives. The comfort that comes by understanding the work of the cross in us. Now I don't mean to paint an unnecessarily graphic picture, but if if you ever had to kill an animal using an inept weapon you'll understand what I'm trying to say. If a snake comes into our yard, Mary sees it and it's a dead snake. My grandchildren have vivid memories of watching Nana go to get her shovel and march out to do battle with the dragon. I've often been grateful for both the accuracy of her aim and the strength of her arm and the determination of her will and the sharpness of her shovel. Otherwise, it would be a horrible thing to see the hacking and the writhing and the length of the ordeal. In case you don't see the analogy, execution is not only the place of pain, it is the place of the cessation of pain. The pain only goes on as long as it takes for the execution to be effectively carried out. And if we writhe and scream and prolong the agony because we're using an inept weapon, one that denies the call of the cross, that demands its own rights, and that thinks the entire gospel is about making us happy without dealing with the things in our lives and character which are absolutely in total opposition to that which could actually truly make us happy, then we have a lot of unnecessary suffering. Even God cannot change this. The only way then to come to life is through this death. And the sharper the tool, that is, the clearer we understand the cross, then the faster and cleaner the execution. A.W. Tozer said all this better than me when he said, There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The roots of our hearts have grown down deep into these things, including relationships, by the way. We dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. These things have become necessary to us, we think. A development never in God's original intention for us. God's gifts now take the place of God and the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution. Tozer gets more to the root of our pain when he says, We are often hindered from giving up our treasure to the Lord out of fear for their safety. This is especially true when those treasures are loved ones. But we need have no such fear. Our our Lord came not to destroy life, but to save it. Everything is safe when committed to him, and nothing is really safe which is not so committed. Still, it's never easy to stop playing God and trying to control things for our own purposes, is it? Tozer goes on to say, The ancient curse will not go out painlessly. The tough old miser within us will not lie down and die in obedience to our command. No, he must be torn out of our heart like a plant from the soil. He must be extracted in agony and blood like a tooth from the jaw. He must be expelled from our soul by violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. And we shall need to steel ourselves against his piteous begging and to recognize that it is springing out of self-pity, one of the most reprehensible sins of the human heart. C.S. Lewis paints a vivid picture of this battle in The Great Divorce, a story about a busload of people from hell who take a bus trip to heaven only to find that there are aspects of their lives that they want to keep in their control, aspects that cannot even They can't enter heaven. In this scene a man with a lizard of lust encounters a flaming angel with a great sword who offers to kill the lizard. Let's listen in on this conversation. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all ghosts he was insubstantial but They differ from one another as smokes differ from one another. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body, too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Ah, yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I I told this little chap, he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course his stuff won't do up here, I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall have to go home, I suppose. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit. Uh, of, Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? Well, you you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but... It's kind of a new point I haven't thought of. I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing him because up here, well, it's so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Oh, please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, I'll, I'll... He's gone to sleep of his own accord. I'm sure it'll all be all right now. Thank you very much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for things so drastic as that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Uh, you don't think so? Well, I'll think it over. Uh, what you said, I'll think it over very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'll—I'd let you kill it now. But as a matter of fact, I don't feel very well today. I—I I would be silly to to try to go through this now. I need to be in good health for this operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? When you're killing me, it'll kill me if you kill it. It is not so. Why are you hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know you think I'm a coward. But it isn't that. It it isn't. Just let me go back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew it would all be over with by now if you had? I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost close to the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loudly that even I could hear what he was saying. Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural, you know. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams. All sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Yes, you might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. Oh, you're right, it would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Damn and blast, yes, do it, can't you? Just get it over, do what you like bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, "'Oh, God, help me! "'God, help me!' Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on the earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisting it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed, onto the turf. "'Oh, it's finished me!' gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and the hands. The neck and the golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I would have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, not much smaller than the angel. But what distracted me was the fact that at the same moment something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. As it grew, it changed. Its hind parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy hind parts. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen. Silver white, but with a mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees shivered. This new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck, its nose up against his bright body. Horse and master breathed into each other's nostrils. The man turned from it. Flung himself at the feet of the burning one and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have only been the liquid love and brightness one cannot distinguish them in that country which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. In joyous haste, the man leapt upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. "'and they were off before I knew well what was happening. "'I came out as quickly as I could "'from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, "'but already they were only like a shooting star "'far off on the green plain "'and soon among the foothills of the mountains. "'Then still, like a star, "'I saw them winding up, "'scaling what seemed impossible steeps, "'and quicker every moment "'till near the dim brow of the landscape so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of the everlasting morning. The lizard of lust was not a demon. The lizard of lust was the misused creative energy that once it was broken, was not completely done away with, but was transformed. Some things in us cannot be transformed. They must must be destroyed. Other things need to be set free from bondage and released to their true nature. Lust is misguided creative energy. Lewis paints that picture very well here. But in closing, let me just ask you this. What is it in your life that's killing all the joy that's depriving you of peace, even while it keeps offering the same empty promises of pleasure or satisfaction or justice or whatever it is. You wonder where God is and why he's not answering you. I understand that. I don't say that with one drop of condescension or superiority. I've been there too many times. That's why I'm talking to you about it now. I had a very dull understanding of the cross and what was calling to me from that cross. I kept making the same foolish choices because I was driven by the same old sinful nature that demanded that God change reality and adjust it to fit my insanity. But thankfully, he would not. Because you do understand when we speak of the cross, we're speaking symbolically. It's not an ancient piece of wood we're talking about. We're talking about coming to the cross. We're talking about coming to the one who died on that cross and who rose from the dead and who loves you and who understands your lizards and your lusts and your losses and your pain and your anger and your disappointment. And he, he came to deliver you from the misuse of life and bring you into the fullness of life. He is the reality that we come to. Not a doctrine about the cross. We come to a person. And he calls me to the cross. He calls me to come and die. Not die so I could die. But die so I can live. And all of us will have to go. Or I should say, get to go. Only that way and no other. The goal is not depriving us of life so that we can die, but delivering us from death so we can live. My lizard became my stallion. Now that process continues to work in other areas of my life, but maybe not as dramatic as the initial one, but still needed. I'm still moving more and more further up, further in toward the mountains, toward my true home. I'm closer now than when I first believed. My outer man is perishing, but my inward man is being renewed day by day as I look not at what is visible, but at what is invisible. I could not even see this invisible reality if I had stubbornly demanded that God keep giving me my old life on my own terms. Only the pure in heart can see God. Pure in heart does not mean sinless perfection. It means to not be mixed in my affections, to not be double-minded, to not worship both God and Baal, to not be baptized with a hugging serpent in my arms. To truly repent, to, to fully turn. Pure in heart does not mean there are no struggles against the old sinful patterns, but it means there are struggles for you will grow more and more to hate what is evil and love what is right, and the struggle in your chest between those two opposite forces will become so demanding of you that you find you must fight for the good and against the evil until there is nothing left that you have to fight anymore because you are like him. It won't be in this life, but you will make great progress if you decide that you want the conflict instead of acquiescing and bowing to the temptations. You're wholly His. Jesus came to save you from your sins and He who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. But if you've been allowing the mixture in your life that's been the source of all your pain, then you've already allowed it for too long. Let the work of the cross begin in you now. Ask for it. He has been lovingly waiting to hear from you about it, and it doesn't matter how many false starts you have attempted. Call for him now to come and take you there. The empty tomb concludes Golgotha's sorrow. Endure then till tomorrow your cross of suffering. Embrace the cross, but more to the point, be embraced by the one who gave himself on the cross, who rose from the dead, and who ever lives to intercede for you until you are like him. Thanks for listening. God bless you all.